So, hey, guys, we are back for part two with Peter Brand. Um, if you didn't know, go back before you listen to part two and listen to part one. Uh, we did an awesome interview with Peter Brandt, and he talks all about his life and his father and the influences on his father, and it's a really great podcast. So please go back, listen to part one. That would be episode, or excuse me, season two, episode seven, and that is uh, Open Talk and History with Peter Brandt. Listen to that one first, and but we're and then that'll help you to understand where we're going today in part two. And hopefully, I'm, I'm hoping you guys will want enough of Peter Brand because I want to talk about all his books and stories, and, and he's a great guest. You're going to hear him here in a minute, and you're going to love him as much as I do. I want to um, I want to thank Peter because you can find all of Peter's books at tombstonevendetta.com. Uh, and that is Tombstone Vendetta, if you know how to spell Vendetta, it's V-E-N-D-E-T-T-A, TombstoneVendetta.com. All his books are there for sale. We're going to be talking today about uh, Texas Jack Vermilion, and you can find Texas Jack Vermilion, the book, on his website. Now, if you buy it today, or when you hear this podcast, let the lady know that you heard Jean's her name when you order it. Let Jean know that you heard the podcast with Peter Brand and I, and you're going to get the Perry Mallon book about Perry Mallon who went to Denver to arrest Doc and bring Doc Holliday back to Arizona. It's a fabulous, it's a small book, but it's a great story about the life and times or life and crimes of Perry Mallon, and he'll be giving that book away for free if you go on tombstonevendetta.com and order the Jack Vermillion book. Do they, is it only Jack Vermillion or is it, um, um, the other book that you have out about Johnny Tyler? Well, if we do a part three, um, Mike, we might look at doing that for Johnny Tyler as well. Okay, I definitely want to. But as far as the P- the Perry Mallon book, is it oh, the giveaway? Is it only with the Jack Vermillion book? Yes. Okay. So you'll get the so go on the website and look at tombstonevendetta.com and look at the book. It's called uh, The Story of Jack Vermillion by Peter Brand. It's Wyatt Earp's Vendetta Posse Writer. Uh, it's a great book. We're going to talk about it today. And you'll get the Perry Mallon book absolutely free. And that's huge because it's $35 for the book and it includes shipping. And you, you know, if you live in a faraway area like on a lone mountaintop in Russia, it might be a little more. But, um, for the most part, you're going to be okay. I also want to, uh, uh, shout out to the folks over at the Wild West History Association. You can find them at wildwesthistory.org. Um, I'm a member. Peter's a member. And it's really for people who are looking for deep researched history. And, um, and I was corrected by David E. Haas, who I interviewed the other day. It's called Provenance. Is that right? Provenance? Provenance. And, and it's really for people who are looking for that deep researched history. And then they'll get the, uh, They'll get the Wild West History Association um, journal, which is a quarter-inch thick. I measured it today to make sure. It is a quarter-inch thick of solid American uh, history, um, the American West, all the players involved, um, some wonderful articles, including Peter and Roy B. Young and, and Nick Catabo. I just met and Eric. 
um, some wonderful people there that uh, are going to put some stories together. And to join, it's $75 for the first year, $125 for the second year, or $175 for three years. And if you do the three years, you actually save $50. So I joined for three years, saved the 50 bucks every quarter, every three months, I get the journal and I get all sorts of, you know, cool little stuff, but it gives me access to some of the best history writers and researchers out there in uh, the American Wild West today that's going on right now. And so I really, really urge you to look up wildwesthistory.org, see what they've got going on, give them a shout out, uh, join, become a member, get the journal, and, you know, and tell them that Mike sent you. And they'll be like, Mike who? But just, they'll know. Just say Mike sent you. Um, and that is the folks over at Wild West History Association. So today we're going to get into the podcast. We have Peter Mallon. And, and Peter Mallon wrote a wonderful book um, called Texas Jack Vermilion. When we ended last time, we were talking about how he had gone to Tennessee to see the John, the Vermilion family and found out about a, a gentleman named John Vermilion, found out that he was actually not part of the Jack Vermilion uh, family. Um, he returned back to Australia a little disappointed, but wiser. Um, and it, it's still the, the trip and everything involved in the trip was a learning lesson that helped him write the book. Now, I want people to know about the book itself and why I love this book. A standard book on the market right now is nine and a half inches by six and a half inches. That is what a standard book size wise. The book for that Peter wrote, Texas Jack Vermilion, is actually 11 by 8 and 3 quarters. So it is a large book. And the reason that is important to me is the font is large and it gives more room for pictures. And I was looking through the book and literally like every other page has got pictures. And in some cases, two to three pictures per page. Um, they're pictures that you may not have seen before. And for that, along with this beautiful front cover that is drawn by, um, it's done by Bob Bozbell, I believe, correct? No, Bob Bozbell actually did the uh, the cover art for oh, uh, Johnny my, Tyler. my recent book, the Johnny Tyler book. But actually, um, the cover uh, art on that was a colla- on the Texas Jack book was a collaboration be- between myself and. Um, and a guy named John Kozlowski from oh, wow. WWHA, who uh, who is a very gifted um, design guy. Well, it's a beautiful cover. I thought I thought that uh, Bob Bo's Bell had something to do with it, so I was corrected. But thanks. But I mean, you guys are going to want to get the book. Um, it's really fantastic, and we'll talk about it later. So as you and I were taking last time that we spoke. And if there's any crackling, remember, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, and he's in Australia, so there's a long reach. But um, you and I took and spoke about it last time, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and you had make, made your trip, realized John Vermillion was not the guy. You had gotten home, and you'd gotten yourself back together. What happened after you got home? Um, this was going to be no easy task to research um, Texas Jack Vermillion because uh, there'd been so much written about the, the wrong 
the wrong man. So he'd been identified as John Wilson Vermillion. And coincidentally, when I got home, uh, about that 1997, 1998 time frame, um, Casey Tefatilla had written a book on Wyatt Earp, which is a fantastic book, um, very detailed. Um, it's probably one of the best um, books to buy if you're interested in Wyatt Earp's biography. Um, but he included a photo of John Wilson Vermillion, and I originally had thought, well, okay, well, he must be right. And then two other big heavy hitters in the field at the time, Glenn Boyer and Ben Trawick, um, who was a tombstone historian, they also brought out books and booklets, and they had a picture of this John Wilson Vermillion as Texas Jack in their publications as well. So the market at that time just got flooded with information about John Wilson Vermillion, but I'd been to visit his uh, grandson um, that year, as we spoke of on the last podcast, and his grandson did not know that, you know, this was being um, done or said about his, his grandfather, and I didn't find anything there that helped me confirm uh, the situation. So I'd come home and I was a bit disappointed and um and I thought, wow, this isn't going to be easy. So uh, the first thing I did um, was I thought I, I need to know who the who's writing about these subjects and what the field is like because, as I mentioned in the last podcast, I was a tourist. So I needed to educate myself about the field itself, the research field, who was in it, who was writing about these these characters, who who could be trusted with their information, and and like who who was doing the deep research. So, what I did, I decided to uh, subscribe to True West magazine uh, and Wild West magazine, um, which were both uh, monthly or semi-monthly publications at the time. True West is they're both still going. Um, they've changed ownerships, but they're both still going. Um, so I bought those to see what was being written about the subject at that time, who was writing it and who was writing what. Um, and I joined two other uh, more academic organisations. One was called the Western Outlaw Lawman Association and the other was called the National Outlaw Lawman Association. And they were very similar in that they covered similar topics um, and they had quarterly magazines that were more scholarly and more academic in that they were footnoted and they provided sources. They weren't for entertainment as much as education. So um, I joined um, those two organisations and I subscribed to those magazines so that I was getting on a regular basis in my mailbox, I was, I was getting the latest uh, that had been written in the field and I was getting to know the authors, um, what sort of work they were pumping out, who was writing about the herbs, who was writing about Doc Holliday. Um, and, and I was kind of in that process of um, educating myself about the field because it was a field I wanted to get into and it was a field that I felt I might be able to contribute something to, but it was like a learning process in those next couple of years when I got back. I really wanted to see what was happening in the field. So that's how I got started uh, in educating myself that way. But to the person that's listening now, Nola and Wola joined forces and became the Wild West History Association. So if you're out there going, oh my gosh, I got to join Nola and Wola, they're gone, correct? Correct. So eventually, 
due, I think it was mainly due to a cost situation. Both organisations were pumping out quarterly um, scholarly um, journals and prices were rising and memberships were often... Um, Duplicated. Duplicated because people would join both like I did. I was in both. The, the only advantage or the big advantage was you, you're getting two quarterly publications. So you're getting eight publications a year, which is enormous, really, when you think about it. Um, but the costs and the fact that me- people were already members of both, eventually uh, those two organisations, instead of competing against each other, eventually they decided, well, it'd be best if we formed a joint organisation. So they combined their forces, and that is what we now have as the Western um, History Association or the Wild West History Association, should I say, the WWHA. So that would come later. But at the time I was getting started, I was lucky enough to have these two organisations. And and whilst they were – there was a friendly kind of rivalry between them, so they were out to get the, the latest information to their uh, their subscribers. So it, it, they were great organisations to be involved with because you were you were you were reading um, articles that obviously you know they weren't long enough to make a book, but they might be an episode of White Earp's life or an episode of Doc Holliday's life that may have been unknown prior. And you could delve really deeply into the subject because they'd give you pages and pages to, um, you know, explore a topic or explore a subject and you could footnote it so that the reader would know where you got your information. And that's vital when you're trying to do this kind of research because people, that, a lot of people, if they want the folklore and, and the legend, they'll go to Tombstone and they can have their fill. But if you want the truth and you want to get to the fact of the matter, you needed to be in these organisations that allowed the author to really uh, provide you with the source of their information. So those um, those organisations were really instrumental in me getting started because I could every quarter or every three months I was getting two journals that had the latest information published by people who were active in the field. And I was able to study the way they wrote where they were getting their information from. I learned about historical societies. I learned about uh, archive, uh, state archives. So I was very, I was like a student studying how to write, how to research, where to find this information and what it might entail for me to go on my own journey of discovery. So that was um, something that really helped me get, get an understanding of the field. So I did that. And um, and then I was going to the United States um, annually, so I'd, I'd plan a trip normally um, around about September, October, where the weather's pretty pretty nice everywhere you go, and and I would then um, try to do some on the ground research myself. So on one trip, I um, I went to the Arizona Historical Society, and I realised that they were actually able to sell me microfilm of the old newspapers, the the Tombstone Nugget and the Tombstone Epitaph. So I I went to the Historical Society, I put in my order, I think it was about 50 bucks for each of them, and they were able to duplicate on microfilm all the newspapers for the Epitaph and the Nugget for Tombstone for the years 1880 to 1882. So I packed those in my bags. Um, Instead of buying books this time, I was actually buying 
primary source material that I could then bring back to Australia. I bought a second-hand microfilm reader, and here I was in, in back in Sydney at the end of one of the, the subsequent trip, and I started to immerse myself in Tombstone from the newspapers. So the epitaph and the nugget, I'm sitting here in Sydney with, the, with an old second-hand microfilm reader, actually starting to do my own research. And, the, and I thought, I've got to start from scratch. I've got to go and read these newspapers. So that's what I did. And, and while I'm reading the newspapers, I'm getting the quarterlies, I'm getting the, the True West and the Wild West magazines, and I'm educating myself about who's writing and what they're writing. So once I'd realised that, you know, there was quite a, a few people in the field that were seemed to be producing um, regular articles, I started to actually then write to those people. So I sent letters out to just about every author I could imagine um, that was writing in the field. I sent letters to Casey Tefatilla. I sent letters to Gary Roberts, who was writing about Doc Holliday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sent letters to Glenn Boyer and Ben Trawick, and there was another guy named Lee Silver, who was <coughs> a Californian, who was writing about wider. And I fired out all these letters asking if they had any information maybe that they had up their sleeve that they weren't going to use or that they'd found incidentally about Texas Jack and the Earth Vendetta Posse. And I was basically asking them to respond to me and, and help me out with a, a tidbit or a, a, a clue or a, somewhere that, you know, I, I might be able to find some information. So that was my um, first sort of effort at making, creating a network, if you like, of um, in the field. So but I wrote let me to ask you something. People. Let me ask yep. you something. A guy named Peter Brand that no one really knows anything about reaches out to these huge history writers that you said, researchers, writers, historians. And you're like, listen, I know you don't know me, but I'm doing a book or some research about Texas Jack. And can you just share anything with me? Did you get ignored or did the did they open up and say, Yeah, dude, we'll help you, I'm sure. Yeah, and that that was um that was an education in itself. I, I got a very lukewarm response, so naturally, because I, I had no name in the field. I was from a another country and most people um in America who are dealing with someone from another country, they're treating them as a tourist or a you know, a novelty sort of situation. So I didn't. I got a very um, uninspiring response. Most of them were polite enough to respond. I got to give them that, but they were saying, sort of saying, "No, I got nothing for you. Good luck." The the there was uh, the one exception to that um, was uh, Lee Silver, who um, unfortunately has since uh, departed, but. Um, at the time, he was um, he was very very friendly, very open, very helpful, um, and, and I don't mean to um, be disrespectful to the other men because they were they were very nice too, and that they responded, but they they responded with a more or less you know thanks for your interest. I, I don't really have anything for you. Good luck, sort of thing. Whereas Lee Silver was um, very very uh, encouraging, uh, extremely hospitable. Invited me to his house. Um, on one of my subsequent trips, um, you know, had afternoon tea with him. He introduced me to another leading light in the field. who was Jeff Morrie who came over to his house 
Um, we visited with him for a while. He was extremely knowledgeable on the gunfight itself. Um, he knew basically everything that happened that that fateful day. And and so I was starting to get a foot in the door, if you like, uh, actually meeting those people. Then I realised, okay, I, I need to meet more of these people face-to-face because, as I mentioned to you in the first podcast, the letter and the email sometimes don't get get a, a good response. They get a lukewarm response. So you've got to, I mentioned in the previous podcast, you've got to go face-to-face. And I found when I went face-to-face with Lee Silver and Jeff Murray, um, it, it comes alive. The whole interaction you know, becomes very real. You, you see people's reactions firsthand. You, you can look them in the eye, ask them a question, see how they respond. And, you, and as you know, Mike, dealing with people a lot, um, you can tell a lot about someone face-to-face, whereas you can't really do that via letter or a, an email. So I was finding that I was getting um, a foothold by meeting these people face-to-face. And, and the WALA and the NOLA, um, the, the Western Outlaw Lawman Association and the National Outlaw Lawman Association, they, whilst they, they printed their, their quarterly uh, magazines, they also had annual conventions. So the next thing I decided to do was to go to one of their conventions. So on, my, on one of my trips, I, I planned it so that I would be in the country when they'd have their three- or four-day um, event. And so I, I started off um, thinking that that would be the best approach, the face-to-face approach, having met Lee Silver, having met Jeff Morrie, um, I thought, okay, I've got to get myself to some of these events so that I can actually present and say, okay, well, here I am, this is what I'm interested in, and see if I could make a network or a connection with some like-minded people. But when you did that, I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're going to go there, you've met a couple of people, Peter's going to be standing inside a conference room or a hotel in a lobby, you're you're a tall man, you and I are both over six feet, I believe, and you're like, hi, I'm... I'm Peter. I'll try to do an Australian. Hello, you know, good eye. I'm, I'm I'm Peter Brand, and people are like, um, yeah, that's great. That's great. You're Peter Brand. Did they welcome you with open arms, or did they say, oh, Peter, hi, you're here. Wow, you're really here. Did they do that? Um, there's a little bit of that, but but what I realised straight away was. Um, I had no. I still had no presence in the field, so I'd never written anything. I'd never published anything, and I was I was just another face in the crowd. So while um, while this was going on, while I was buying and subscribing to all these magazines, and I I started reading the Tombstone newspapers here at home, and I started taking notes as I'd come across something of interest to me about the Tombstone, uh, sorry, about the wider Vendetta Posse um, that I hadn't seen mentioned in a book previously 
Um, because when when other writers were writing about Wyatt Earp or Doc Holliday, they focus in on those names. So they're concentrating on any article or any mention of those guys in the newspapers, whereas I was focused on the Vendetta writers. I was focused on Texas Jack, Sherman McMaster, Dan Tipton, uh, Jack Johnson, Charlie Smith. I was, I was interested in those guys. So every time one of those names popped up, I would note, you know, where they were, what they were doing, what hotel they were checking into, who, who, you know, what the newspaper report mentioned about them. So I was taking copious notes about my guys, not about so much about White and Doc, but about my guys. So, and I was finding things. I started to find uh, mentions of them booking into hotels. I started to find them, you know, running Kino games or, or a Ferra game or comings and goings. When did they arrive? When did they leave? Things like that that were inconsequential to other people, they were starting to build a story for me in uh, in my work. So I did that, and at the same time, the internet was starting to take off. So the internet was um, was was really a great help in in for someone remotely located like myself to suddenly be able, instead of writing a letter, you'd be able to send an email to somebody if you had their address. You'd be able to get an instant response, whereas instead of waiting for airmail that took, you know, a week or something, um, you were able to start looking at the Arizona Historical Society website, for example, without having to visit it physically. So the internet played a big part then in launching... Um, another aspect of the research for me. So whilst you still had to go through the microfilm, you still had to laboriously read every page, the internet was then taking off and was making things a lot easier in terms of making connections with, be it people or organisations. You had it at your fingertips. Um, in not, I mean, it's, it's really um, taken over our lives now, but at the time, it was just taking off. So... Not everybody had a website and not everybody, not every organisation had a website, but most people were having email addresses. So that made uh, exchanging information, exchanging addresses, exchanging details a lot easier. So I started to do that as well. So you can see where I'm going here. I'm starting to build a network of friends, a network of associates, um, and that... I found that that was going to be vital for me being remotely located. I needed a network of people that were friendly, that were happy to um, talk about the subject to start with. Um, they may not necessarily have anything to offer in terms of um, clues or hints, but they could help me in terms of what they did in their journey, uh, researching their topic of interest, because often the same principles apply when you're researching a character, you, you need, when you're in your infancy like I was, you need to get some advice from people about um, how to go about it. So um, the internet was very, very important in that. And what I found uh, when I was doing searches and talking to people, um, I started to find um, clues and tips myself uh, because the, the, a lot of the things that were very first put on the internet were indexes. They were the easiest things to put on the internet um, when it was when it was just kicking off. So you'd have a, a, a historical society might put an index 
of people they had information on. They wouldn't have the information on the internet, but they'd have that person's name there saying that they did they did have a biographical file on a certain person or people that were, you know, engaged in business in Tombstone or or uh, they were engaged in law enforcement. or So you had all these organisations that were putting indexes on the internet and that helped me a great deal to get started because I hit the jackpot. I found... Um, Sherman Master, who had been uh, involved with a, obviously very heavily involved in the, the Vendetta Posse and in Tombstone history in general, um, I found that he'd been a Texas Ranger. I located him in an index of Texas Ranger records, and that was a big deal because I hadn't read anything about that before. I'd read a little bit about Sherman McMaster in that he... Uh, He'd flipped back and forth between being like hanging with the outlaws and then ending up with with Wider being deputised as a as a federal uh, uh, marshal in, in the uh, Vendetta Posse. But having located that he'd been a Texas Ranger changed the game for me because, as you know, the Texas Ranger image is iconic as well in America. Um, and a very famous law enforcement organisation still going today, I believe. Correct. Um, and so that was a big find for me. I thought, wow, this guy had been – this is prior to Tombstone. So we're talking 1878. This guy had been a Texas Ranger. So I, I quickly sent an email off to uh, the Texas State Archive because they had all the Texas Ranger records. They had – Pay, pay records, they had muster records, they had full descriptions of their ranges, like height, weight, um, and when I got the information back, it opened up a whole um, new topic for me. I thought, wow, I've got information here that no one else has found, no one else has written about, and, I, and that really kick-started me, because when you're searching for information, if you're coming up with zero all the time, it's very discouraging, but when you come up with a big find, which I thought this was, um, it's very encouraging. So it gives you that boost to keep going and because you think, okay, well, I found this. I might be able to find something else. So I got McMaster's records, and they were very um, interesting. They, they told me how much he got paid. They, they described him in terms of height, weight, hair colour, eye colour. Um, they even described the value of his horse because at the time, Texas Rangers had to supply their own firearms and their own horse. So there was information about the kind of firearm he carried. He carried a forty-four Colt. So this was fascinating to me because it was actual detail that I hadn't read anywhere before. I'd read his name, but like we said in podcast number one, I had no idea exactly what these guys were like. And and the descriptions were very vague, but now I had an like an actual description of the guy, so I could then uh, picture him in my mind. I knew um, a lot more about him than I did before, and that was all because of those Ranger records. Um, and in the background, Gene Smith was then um, researching their family history because, as I mentioned in podcast one, um, we became partners, and she was very good at genealogy, so she was great at tracking people's uh, families and their ancestries to find out what sort of influences um, they experienced growing up. So she was uh, she dug up a lot of information on um, all five guys, really, their, their families and uh, their father, mother, if they had siblings, where they grew up, um, traced them through the census records. And so 
so a picture was forming of, of some of these guys. The problem I had was the picture wasn't forming of Texas Jack. He was still a mystery man because I'd, I'd sort of uh, figured that he, he wasn't John Wilson to me and, um, as as these other authors had said. I'd worked that much out myself um, because his name wasn't showing up in uh, Cochise County records. They weren't even showing up in Arizona records. Um, so I was getting a picture of all these other Vendetta guys, but not Texas Jack. And as we mentioned previously, I had no name in the um, in the field. I hadn't written anything. So I, I remember sitting at home here with all this brand new information on um, McMaster, and I thought to myself, this is new, um, and if I'm going to get a name, uh, if I'm going to get a presence in the field, which I, I really wanted, um, I thought I'd better publish something. So I actually sat down and wrote an article for the Western Outlaw uh, History Association, the Waller, as it was at the time, a Sherman Master. I, I wrote about his um, his beginnings, his, his early uh, childhood um, through the census records that have been discovered. And then I wrote about his engagement as a Texas Ranger, and that that piece was the first thing that I had published. It was around about 2000, the end of uh, 1999, beginning of 2000, and Waller decided to publish it, and that was my first published work. That led to the discovery that... Well, wait a minute. Bell Hold wrote. on. Hold yeah. on. i got to stop you. I, yep. could, I could listen to you for hours. It's the Australian thing, telling you. Um, let's go back. So you write this article, and they agreed to publish it. It gets published. It opens some doors. What happens to the people that you reached out to previously? Did they all of a sudden go, oh, hey, bud, great article. We'd love to help you now. We get where you're going. Did that happen? Did you get... A little more yeah. like, hmm, he's one of us. Yeah, well, I, I got a, a great reaction from that article because because it was new information. And that was one thing that I was determined to do. I didn't want to be a rehasher. And, and what I mean by a rehasher is somebody who comes along, uh, reads what's been written, and then paraphrases it and writes the same thing uh, again, in a different way. I didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to feed off other people and then just rearrange what, what had already been written. I wanted to actually bring something new to the table um, because I knew that people, these people, the, the people that I'm talking about that were publishing themselves and were writing for a while, and they could pick a rehasher a mile away, and I didn't want to be that. I wanted to bring new information. So this was new information, and... It led to, once I started getting these Texas Ranger reports, I realised in one of the reports, they said they'd captured Curly Bill Brocious in a, in a mm-hmm. uh, operation. He'd shot up a, an army ambulance wagon um, in 1878 just outside El Paso where mm-hmm. Sherman McMaster's Texas Rangers were located. Mm-hmm. And I discovered in the... Texas Ranger reports, they describe the situation in far greater detail than anyone had before. They also describe holding him captive while awaiting trial and awaiting um, the outcome of that trial. They held him for five months in their 
in their Texas Ranger compound because there was no jail available to hold them anywhere else. So McMaster had an interaction with Curly Bill for at least five months while Curly Bill Brocious was a prisoner of McMaster's detachment of Texas Rangers, which added an entirely new layer to the whole story again. So then I wrote a second article straight away about the escape of Curly Bill Brocious because he eventually dug his way out of the Adobe jail that the Rangers had him in and he made his escape. Mm -hmm. That, again, was brand new information. No one had had that information published before. So I got that out there again in the Waller. And those back-to-back articles opened doors for me because people could see then, oh, okay, he wasn't a one-hit wonder. He's come back with something else. It's all brand new. Um, And people started to take notice. I got an invitation in the mail out of the blue from Michael Hickey, who I'd mentioned in the first podcast, who was a very enthusiastic writer about the Herps. He was having a... uh, a 100th anniversary commemorating the death of Warren Earp in Wilcox in the year 2000. And he read both my articles um, on McMaster. He sent me a personal invitation to come to this invitation-only uh, event that he was holding in Wilcox in the year 2000. So I got that out of the blue, but I'd realised when I got that, I realised, okay, people are reading They're taking notice and people are saying, okay, this is good stuff. So the feedback was kind of immediate. I went to that event and it was very, very good. People were very enthusiastic about what I was bringing to the table. Um, And I was able to make face-to-face connections with an awful lot of people in the field who were at that event. And I felt like I was on the road then. I was on on the way to... um, getting a foothold in the field. So I wasn't just somebody now who was reading other people's books. I was actually bringing new information to the table. I was meeting people. I was being invited to events. With that um, event, I also piggybacked that, his event, uh, into a Waller convention that was held in El Paso, um, which kind of fitted in really neatly with what I'd written because mm-hmm. the action had taken place around El Paso. So I went to that Waller convention um, and so I met more people and I saw how Waller worked and how they had presentations, they had awards, they had big dinners, they had breakout sessions where you could talk to like-minded people about your very specific topic. So I was on my way and that those articles really kick-started it. They, they let people know that there was someone new in the field, someone was interested in not, not so much um, the... Doc Holliday's and the White Earths, but some of these peripheral characters who in their own way had um, great stories to be told as well. At least I thought they did. Um, so, but, but let me yeah, ask you. That, that, let me yeah. ask you. All of this is going on. When does the connection happen to where you get your first piece of evidence or pers- first piece of information about Texas Jack? Um, that happened over time. So um, the, the next thing I wrote about, the next guy I wrote about was okay. Daniel Tipton. He oh. was an Earth Vendetta writer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we discovered that he'd been, um, he'd served in the Civil War. Uh, we found uh, he'd served as a seaman, which was, you know, quite different to most of the others. Most of the others you hear about are infantrymen or um cavalry this guy was actually serving 
on the sea as a blockade runner in the Civil War. So that was very interesting. I published about him. Then True West magazine asked me to publish something about him in one of their Doc Holiday feature pieces, so I published about him. Um, there was a lot of information we found on Texas uh, – sorry, on Turkey Creek Jack Johnson. I published about him. Uh, I knew Gary Roberts was writing a biography on – Doc Holiday, and I knew that um, I might be able to piggyback off that. So uh, I got together with Gene Smith and another researcher, and we researched the life and crimes of Perry Mallon, who had a big influence on Doc Holiday. And I decided to try to, instead of giving that article away to uh, a magazine or to uh, a Waller or a Nola, I decided to self-publish that. And that's the booklet that I'm going to be giving away today, uh, or as a uh, as in, in accordance with this podcast, if somebody wants to buy the Texas Jack book that we'll get to in a minute, um, I wrote that Perry Mallon uh, booklet and published that myself just to see what the pitfalls were and how expensive that was going to be. I knew that a major publisher wouldn't be interested in Perry Mallon because he was a minor character, but he had a major influence on Doc Holliday. So Who? he arrested Doc in Denver. Can I ask who was the other researcher that was with Gene? So, was so that Mike? I was sitting. I was sitting in the um, in uh, Big Nose Kate's saloon in Tombstone in about 2004, and uh, I was uh, having a drink there with Gene and another researcher named Jennifer Lewis, hmm. who happened to be at at this event that we were both at. And I said to them, you know, Doc Holliday is going to be a big name when Gary Roberts brings out his his fantastic biography. Um, Gary Roberts is a wonderful writer, wonderful researcher, became a great friend, a very encouraging friend, and he was going to bring out this Doc Holiday book, and I was having uh, lunch with these two, Gene uh, and Jennifer Lewis, and we both said, well, how about we piggyback off that, write about Perry Mallon, it fitted in with me because I was writing about these peripheral characters, and I thought we could sort of piggyback off the interest that would be in Doc Holiday once Gary Roberts uh, released his book. So we dug up an awful lot of great unpublished information on Perry Mallon, um, had the booklet, um, I typeset the booklet myself, had it um, printed in the US uh, and launched it at a wall of conventions here at Vista in um, 2006 to coincide with Gary Roberts launching his Doc Holiday biography, which is still a wonderful book. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to see if people would pay money then to, to buy something I wrote. And as it turned out, that was very successful for me. I had a lot of sales at that convention, a lot of mail order, a lot of talk about Perry Mallon. Uh, it worked out really well because we were able to then parlay that off um, Gary Roberts' wonderful book. So you had a companion piece. And Gary Roberts said um, you, he wrote the introduction to that uh, booklet. So you get about a five-page introduction to Perry Mallon in my book written by Gary Roberts, who um, graciously um, agreed to do that for me. Um, and at that same convention, this is Sierra Vista in 2006, Wild West magazine came knocking and asked me to write about the write a feature piece for them about the, the wide open data posse. So the things were happening um, to me very quickly. I was starting to become known and that was um, that was great because instead of me having to submit things, people were coming to me and asking 
me then to write for their magazines. Um, I then did a, a feature piece on Perry Mallon for Wild West magazine, and um, and we Gene and I set up a website called TombstoneVendetta.com to try to cash in on the internet side of things to make ourselves more easily accessible to people who might want to buy that booklet or might want to know what I'd written, where to find it, or might want to contact me. So we set up the Tombstone Vendetta website, and that really changed the game again because uh, that way anybody doing Google searches or um, Yahoo searches could immediately hit the Tombstone Vendetta website, see all these things that had been published by the Perry Mallon booklet, um, and but also contact me directly. I had my contact details on the website. And out of the blue, I remember when it happened, I was in um, I was at the uh, a university in Nevada trying to chase down Dan Tipton a little bit further, um, and I got an email come in to me from a guy named Doug Vermillion who was researching the Vermillion family. And he said to me straight up, I don't think John Wilson Vermillion was Texas Jack. And I immediately knew he knew his stuff because I wrote back to him and I said, you're right, I don't think he was either. Uh, I don't really um, have enough information to to go against the popular view at that time because, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, you had Glenn Boyer, Ben Trawick, and Casey Tefferdiller at all said he was, said John Wilson to me and was the real Texas Jack. But out of the blue, because of the website that we'd set up, I got this direct contact with a Vermillion descendant named Doug Vermillion, who was from Indiana, um, and he said to me, I want to dig further into this and I want to help you. And that blew me away because I, I hadn't reached out to him. He'd reached out to me. So uh, I knew that his bona fides were good. Um, he'd, he'd shown me how he was related to the various familiar lines. He had a, a very keen interest in the whole process. He was very academic in his approach, so he wasn't interested in the folklore. He wasn't interested in the legend. He was interested in it from a family, his own personal family point of view. He wanted to get to the bottom of who the real Texas Jack was, and he was even more invested than me because he was actually a vermilion. So that really blew me away. And, and you know when you know when something important happens to you, you remember exactly where you were when it happened. Um, coincidentally, I was actually in America when it happened, and I was in. As I said, I was in a university in Nevada searching microfilm again, but I was searching for Dan Tipton, who I knew had been in Nevada. Um, so I made contact with Doug Vermillion, and he was just one of the, the nicest guys you could ever meet in terms of being open, honest, um, generous. Uh, he had no um, ulterior motive. He wasn't trying to, like, steal information from me to write his own book or write his own article. He was merely trying to help me get to the bottom. And he knew that uh, because of the website, he could see the history of work that I'd, you know, quickly described to you uh, just then. Like, he'd seen the articles that had been published. He'd seen that, that it was new information. He'd read a couple of things Um so he'd read the Wild West magazine articles um, about Perry Mallon, about the Vendetta ride. 
he knew that I was somebody who was coming at it from a different angle, and he knew that I was invested in um, the John Wilson Vermeen story and the Texas Jack story because he via the website I'd put a summary of what I'd done to date and I'd put a, a, a detail of my original journey to Tennessee to meet John Wilson Vermeer's grandson who we spoke about in the previous podcast so he knew that I was um, I was on the level in other words he knew that I was serious and he knew that I was going to take him seriously and he joined in with Gene and myself in a real concerted effort then to get to the bottom of the the Vermeer, the Texas Jack Vermeer uh, mystery if you like so that was really a great thing and that was a turning point that was the turning point in discovering who the real Texas Jack was. And and that came about because he was um, – he had dug very deeply into the, the Vermilion family who had all apparently originated from a French Vermilion uh, who'd come over like – very early on in the 1700s or the, the late 1600s, he'd come to America and most Vermeans in America have, have descended from that particular um, Vermeian line that came from France. So he was a very good genealogist, just like Gene was, and he dug deep. So he knew all the branches of the Vermilion family. He pegged John Wilson Vermilion. He knew John Petty, John Vermilion, who I'd interviewed in... Uh, Bristol, Tennessee, um, earlier on. He, he had them all in the family tree. and So he, he was like the Vermilion go-to guy in terms of how big the tree was, how big the family tree was, where a lot of the descendants had settled, where they'd moved to. He was, he was extremely important in discovering the, who the real Texas Jack was. And that, was, that all came about because of that process that I'd, I'd summarised for you in you know, me gradually becoming a researcher, gradually becoming an author, gradually self-publishing something to see what it cost, what, how much time it took, um, how it was sold, how you know whether people would pay money to buy something written by uh, someone um, who was coming at things from a different angle. Um, so all that lead-up that I've just given you feeds into what happened with Texas Jack. So... Um, Doug Vermillion then uh, said that he had been writing to the same family, the John Wilson Vermillion family, trying to, to prove that Will, John Wilson Vermillion was not Texas Jack, but he'd taken a different route to me. He, I, Whilst I'd gone down uh, the male side of the family tree, he, he decided to go down the, the female side of the family tree. So... John Wilson Vermeen had a son and a daughter, and I'd followed the son's line. Doug Vermeen followed the the uh, daughter's line, and the the, the women, um, as you know, are a little bit harder to trace because as they marry, their names change. If they have daughters themselves, they marry, their names change, and it becomes very difficult, or a lot harder, should I say to actually trace the female line of a family because the names keep changing, whereas the male side of the family, the Vermeer name remains, and that's how I found the grandson because I found the Vermeer name was still in the phone book, whereas Doug Vermeer had gone down the female line, and he luckily he did because all the mementos, all John Wilson Vermeer's um, 
historic artefacts, his antiques, all the things that he kept and cherished were passed down through the, the female side of the family. So the females had kept uh, kept all his uh, possessions as such. So he had made contact with some great-granddaughters, uh, great-great-granddaughters as well of John Wilson Vermillion, and they told him that they had a trunk that was owned by John Wilson Vermillion and, um, and it had a lot of information about him, uh, about his past. And Doug said, I really need to see that, that trunk and meet that family. So he arranged for me to fly back uh, to Tennessee to meet the female side of the family who had a trunk that had all his possessions in it. I did that in 2009, um, and I went with Doug Vermillion, and I met the family, and it was like a reunion. They, they, it was like um, a celebrity was coming to visit them. Not that I was a celebrity, but they treated me that way. They were very hospitable, very welcoming. Um, I flew again to Nashville. I rented a car, and I drove back to Bristol. Bristol's a really uh, neat town because it, it's split in two. Half of it's in Virginia, half of it's in Tennessee. And um, so I think it's split right down the middle, the main street. If you're on one side, you're in Tennessee. If you're on the other side, you're in Virginia. So I went back to Bristol. Um, I met with the female side of the family. They welcomed me like with that southern hospitality that's, that America's famous for. Um, they were very generous, very open. Uh, just to Doug Vermeen had been, he, he was very, very um, keen to get to the bottom of the story. Mm-hmm. We looked in this amazing old 1880s trunk, a typical trunk with a big latch on the front, opened it up. It had a false bottom in it, and underneath that false bottom in this family trunk was all John Wilson Vermeen's letters and correspondence that he kept mm-hmm. throughout his life. And luckily for us, he did because it, it had all basically his. Um, it had a. It was a chronological list uh, of his movements during the the important period that I was researching that 1880, 1882 period, and he was nowhere near Tombstone. So the letters that we dug out of his trunk from the false bottom um, confirmed that he was still in. Um, Tennessee. He was in Virginia. He was he was working as a lumber at a lumber mill. Uh, he had been a lawman in Missouri, but he'd never been to Tombstone. He'd never met um, Wyatt Earp. He had nothing to do with the story. So how he eventually how he was picked originally, as I mentioned in the first podcast, by an author in the 1950s as being Texas Jack, is beyond me because we proved conclusively on this visit that he wasn't Texas Jack. And that was a major uh, milestone because having the actual primary source information, the letters um, that he'd written to and from his family at the time proved A, where he was, and B, what he was doing, and he was nowhere near Arizona. So I came home from that trip with uh, scanned copies of a lot of material, a lot of letters, a lot of uh, photos, um, a lot of family connection. I came home and I decided that uh, the first part of disclosing well, hold, who Texas Jack was. Well, hold on. Yep. We're at 55 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Can, can, we go, can we go another five minutes and I'll wrap it up? Uh, we got about two minutes because we got to get your closing in. About two minutes. 
Okay, so I came home from that trip and I wrote um, I wrote an article for the the newly formed WWHA, the combination of the Wall and NOLA. I wrote an article completely blowing John Wilson for me and out of the water as being Texas Jack. That article was awarded the WWHA Article of the Year Award for that year in 2011. Uh, I then decided it's time to un- unleash this uh, in a in a published form, in a in a book form. Um, we'd since discovered who the real Texas Jack was um, through pension records for the Civil War family. We discovered the right Texas Jack through Doug Vermeen and his family tree research. Um, I decided to publish both the stories, the real Texas Jack, um, who had been actually fought for the Union, um, as opposed to John Wilson Vermeer, who had fought for the Confederacy. I decided to publish a book myself uh, in large format, as you mentioned, because I wanted to include a lot of photos. And I, deci- I decided to publish the award-winning article uh, about John Wilson Vermeer as an appendix to that book. So in this Texas Jack Vermeer book, you get details of who the real guy is and you also get an appendix with the full unabridged Wall award-winning, uh, sorry, WWHA award-winning article on who the who John Wilson Vermeer was. Uh, he was a great guy in his own right, but he wasn't Texas Jack. So the book itself gives you two biographies for the price of one. Uh, if you go onto the website today well, wait a minute. and you... Hold on. We can't yeah. wrap this up this way. Because there's a lot of people that still want to know more about Texas Jack. And and the Vendetta Ride and the Posse. Um, will you do a part three with me? I think people might be getting a bit tired of this. Part They're part not three. getting tired. I'm not getting tired. They're not going to get tired. The reason I say that is, is because I have questions about the Vendetta Ride. And you are the expert on the Vendetta Ride. And I think there's a lot of people that really want to know. Like, I have questions about the Vendetta Ride that I think only you can answer. So we're going to take the podcast and end it at part two. I will beg for all of you listening for a part three, because I'm sure even if I have to go to Australia and, you know, get him in headlock and then, you know, we're going to do it. Um, I'm sure he'll do a part three. Like he said, if, if you want to get the book, I recommend it. It is a large format book. It's 11 by eight and three quarter. It has 152 pages of learning, 152 pages of history. There is so many, there are so many pictures. It's a large format. It's a wonderful book. Like I, I'm a book owner. I don't like Kindle because I don't like touching an iPad. I like to touch the book and use it as reference. Uh, the feel of a brand new book, like you cannot beat getting a brand new book holding it. You're the only one that's had their fingers on it. You're the only one that's touched it and moved it around. You're the only one that's read it. And you can do all of that at tombstonevendetta.com. That's tombstonevendetta.com. Make sure that you tell Gene or on the website when you order it that you heard the podcast so that you can get the Perry Mallon book, which I've read several times because there is so much history in there about Doc Holliday too. And you can do both, again, at tombstonevendetta.com. I also want to so, make sure... Mike, Mike, Mike yeah. can I just interrupt you yeah. quickly there? On quickly. the website, when when people go to the website, the front page has go. photos 
big, bold colour photos of the Texas Jack Vermillion book and uh, my recent book on Johnny Tyler, if they scroll down the page, this is if you're on a laptop or a computer, yep. if you scroll down the page, the order, how to order, is, there's a click on a link down Perfect. the bottom of that page. It says for more information on how to order, you just click on that link it will then provide you with a lot of fields to fill in about what book you're interested in, um, you know, your name, where you're actually located, mm-hmm. uh, how we can contact you, email address, etc. And uh, at the very bottom of that ordering form, there's a comments page. Anybody who writes a comment in there that you they got enjoy it the podcast... we got 20 seconds. Anybody who says that they enjoy the podcast today and they want to order the Texas Jack book, they'll get a free Perry Mellon booklet to go along with it. All right, guys. We'll see you soon. I can't thank you enough. If you need to get a hold of me, it's hvacreferguy.com. Until next time, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.